Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Matthew 28 at verse 16, the last words recorded by Matthew in his gospel of Jesus. After he was raised, before he was raised into heaven. Matthew 28 at verse 16. Listen, this is God's word. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Jesus came and said to him, them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, if you're visiting with us today, uh, we are partway through a sermon series I am calling, You Keep Using That Verse. I do not think it means what you think it means. And that means we're looking more closely at verses that are in the Bible that have been uh, often misunderstood and therefore misapplied. We're concerned then with examining these texts more closely, and it means we might be challenging uh, long-standing ways we ourselves or others have read these verses and have used them in their lives, and that means as we might challenge and provide this element of correction, uh, we might also see our lives shaped with in, in more uh, closer conformity to align with God's purposes for us as they are expressed in these words. So we're looking again at texts that are in the Bible, but sometimes misunderstood and therefore misapplied with a view to correction if necessary and with a view to proper application, as always is necessary as well. And again, this sometimes is a little hard to do. I appreciate this, because it means we need to approach the text uh, with a spirit of humility and a teachability. It might mean this challenges the way we've thought about it. In other words, not just that we're concerned about how others think about it, but perhaps this strikes close to our own hearts. And I simply encourage you to listen and to test and to see if this is true of yourself or as it is true of Scripture. Well, in the category of you keep using that verse, Matthew 18 certainly fits. Specifically, as it is often shortened or summarized with the opening words of verse 19. Go, or go ye therefore, or maybe go ye therefore to all nations. For much of our own part of Christian history, this has meant a select few, usually white, Western individuals, sometimes sent out by churches and at other times going on their own initiative, but have left family and friends, have picked up a few meager belongings, and have sacrificed much to go to a third world country.
country because go means go. Go from here to there, typically from Western Europe or North America to the long-lost tribes in the countries of Africa or East Asia or South America or you name it. In the darker days of church history, this has involved, at times, hitching a ride with national powers uh, seeking new territories to conquer or with wealthy explorers seeking new resources or new products or new customers. And that has meant, at times, a kind of co-opting of the gospel message with world-conquering colonialism. And this morning, then, I want us to revisit the so-called Great Commission and ask ourselves if it really means what we think it means. And to do that, as always, we need to come back to the context. First, by asking this question, why are we even able to do what Jesus calls us to do? And the opening words of our text provide us with all the reason we're able to do what Jesus calls us to do. You see, sometimes we look at the Great Commission as a kind of farewell speech. These are, after all, the last words Jesus gives to His disciples before He leaves them. But as many others have pointed out, this is actually more like an inaugural address. These are the first words the newly resurrected Jesus says to His disciples as He is about to ascend the throne at His Father's right hand. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God in the flesh, was sent by the Father. He lived that perfect life. He died on the cross for sin. He was raised from the dead, and He is about to ascend into heaven. And in His death and in His resurrection, by the power of the Holy Spirit, He is endowed with all authority in heaven above and in earth beneath. And this is what grounds the commands to follow. You see, it is as we contemplate Jesus, crucified, resurrected, ascended, in all of His glory and authority as He came to announce and inaugurate the kingdom of God. And as we remember, He is that long-awaited Messiah now finally come. And as He has come to populate His kingdom with people, with worshipers and whose resurrection from the dead in the story of Matthew's gospel invites two responses. Are you going to believe in this Messiah and follow Him as His disciple, or are you going to reject Him? Will we or won't we believe Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is not only the eternal Son of God so defined by the authority and the power because of His divine nature, but also that He has, as Son of Man, once dead, now very much alive, being invested with power and authority by His Father in heaven through the work of the Holy Spirit who raised Him from the dead. Are we going to believe in this Jesus? Are we going to believe that this Jesus is God's victor, God's conqueror? The one of whom the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1, 19, 
I want you, friends, to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places where he seated him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he, that is God, put all things under his feet. All things under his, that is Christ's feet. Gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of Him who fills all in all. This Jesus, now raised from the dead, now exalted to the Father's right hand, just before He goes, gathers His disciples at one last time, stands on that mountain and tells them, He is the one of whom Daniel had seen in a vision. Daniel chapter 7, I saw in the night visions, behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, in order that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His is a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. And that would have been ringing in the disciples' ears as they would have needed to piece together all that they had seen and heard these last three years, particularly what they had seen and heard in the last 40 days when Jesus had gone to the cross. The one they had believed in, had followed, had listened to, had died, and then had been raised from the dead, and then taught them everything They needed to know about how all of the Old Testament pointed toward him, how he was the fulfillment of God's promises, how he is the king who is now, as he announces, the one with all authority and all power over all God has made. Jesus is standing before them as one who has obtained the complete victory over sin and death and Satan, the forces of evil, victory over the one who held creation in his grip, who held humanity in his grip. The darkness of subjection to sin. And in recognition of his victory, he is about to return to the Father for an investiture and for a coronation as the risen triumphant king, now given all authority and power because of his perfect obedience that led to his death for that perfect full victory in his resurrection. And so again, the question becomes, since we and all people are created in God's image, created to worship, will we worship him? Or will we worship something or someone else or ourselves? To what or to whom do we and do all humanity owe our worship? Who else or what else has such a claim on us? Who can exceed this claim of Jesus Christ? All authority. 
means. Worship him. And so now the rest of the commands he gives to his disciples make a lot more sense. You see, it's because Jesus is king and because he has gone through that whole series of events of his incarnation having been sent by the Father, his perfect life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and then his pouring out of his Holy Spirit, all that makes sense of the commands. Because Jesus has all authority, he has chosen people to be his disciples. They have heard his voice. They have come to follow him, to love him, to listen to him, to worship him, to adore him. And he says to these chosen disciples, now it is your opportunity to participate in the mission for which I have been sent, that is to gather to myself a global, worldwide, universal community of disciples, those who will be baptized to identify with him, who will be taught to follow him, and who will serve him and worship him as he deserves. Well, with all that in the background, we can finally come then to look at the command. What are we to do? Jesus tells us we are equipped to do what he's calling us to do because of his great power and authority. But what is it we're asked to do? And here, there's a bit of a grammar lesson. And I sometimes apologize for grammar lessons and sometimes I don't. There is in this verse a primary verb that directs what we're to do, and it is not the verb to go. If all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, then we need to know the central command of verses 19 and 20 is to disciple, or to make disciples, or to make disciples of all the nations. And that should force us to ask the question from the start, what is a disciple and how do we make them? Well, if you want to know what a disciple is and you don't quite want to flip through all the pages of Scripture just yet, you could look in the mirror. You are disciples of Jesus Christ. And that means he's calling you to make others like you. Now, not like you in all the bad ways you still know about, but like you as disciples of Jesus Christ, as people who understand the extent and nature of your sin, of your need for a Savior, that Jesus is that Savior, that He is the teacher, that in Him you have life. People who acknowledge Jesus to be the Messiah, who follow Jesus as teacher and king at heart. What is a disciple? Someone who is with Jesus. Weren't these men with Jesus? Those who follow Jesus as teacher and as king. Those who have heard his call, who have responded to his invitation to follow him, who acknowledge his kingship, his total authority over all creation and over you 
yourself. Who follow him with a loyalty, as Jesus says, that supersedes all other loyalties. Who follow him even if it comes at a personal cost. Who follow him wherever he leads, who listen to everything he says, who hang on his every word, who join him in his cause, which is that the church would replicate, that there would be more disciples and followers of Jesus because people have gone before you and invited you or challenged you or preached to you to become a disciple of Jesus and you did and someone did to them before that and ultimately because the apostles, the disciples here listening to Jesus proclaim the gospel to someone before them. Disciples who will, by the preaching of the word and the power of the spirit under the authority of Christ, draw disciples who will want to identify with God, the triune God, who will commit to a life of learning, who will put into practice everything he has taught, who will renounce sin and sinfulness and sinful desires, who will say yes to the new obedience that comes with faith in Jesus Christ, who will embrace the life he has earned for them. So again, the dominant verb, the controlling verb in 19 and 20 is not go, it's disciple. And you can see at some level then there's a kind of whole personed involvement. We want to make disciples. But this does bring us to the supporting verbs in verses 19 and 20. Making disciples involves at least these three things. There is a going. In case you were concerned that I was going to throw out the going, it's there in the text. We still have a going. And it's a going to all the nations. We take a lot more time than we will this morning, but understand this is something God had in mind from the very beginning that he would have a world, a creation populated by worshipers. And then he centralizes that promise to Abraham that to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless your name, make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors or curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And since the good news was largely, as you understand, a gift to God's covenant people in the Old Testament to the Jews, and as it especially comes to its fullest expression in the death and the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem at the heart of the nation in the temp- near the temple where God had chosen to be with his people, the going in those kind of redemptive historical ways, if you can allow that for a moment. But the going in Matthew, the going in Acts, is a going, as Jesus says in one, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. In other words, it's not just a geographical going, but it, it has some sense of embracing the whole creation God has made. It's the expansion of the gospel Not that the Old Testament was exclusively for the Jews, but it was attractional. And in the New Testament, it is a dispersed good news to all and every. 
And that's, of course, the, why the, there's so much tension in the New Testament between Jew and Gentile, why there's such a glorious representation of all the people, groups, and nations and languages present at Pentecost, why they disperse the word, why the church persecuted is scattered and preaches as it goes. There is a going. There is a concern for people groups and languages and tribes and nations who do not know of Jesus Christ. But you see, the command, the Great Commission, is so much richer than simply the notion of going. Because it's not just an identity, or it's not just rather a call or a commission to some the in, uh, individuals or, or even churches who send. It's, it's some part of our core identity of who we are as disciples of Jesus, as the church of Jesus called to replicate disciples. So the going uh, includes and leads to baptizing. What is baptism? But a, at this stage, in, again, in God's good history, it's people coming to know Jesus Christ for the first time and identifying with him through the act of baptism, bringing along their covenant children to be baptized. It's this mark of identification, of introduction and entrance into this new covenant community. Baptism into the name of the God the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit as a mark or identifier as joining, becoming part of the body of Christ in the visible church. Since the good news, again, was largely the gift of God to his people, the Jews, Jesus tells his disciples their going is going to expand from the center in Jerusalem, but to go to every corner of the world. And we, of course, have been swept up in that. People, someone came to us. So making disciples includes baptism, a public expression of identification, of understanding and accepting a right relationship with God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. In the name of the triune God, we recognize Christ's own unique relationship to his Father and to the Spirit. And God places his name on us. Notice what else it includes. There's going, there's baptizing, there's also teaching. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. This isn't drive-by evangelism. This isn't parachuting in uh, and then taking the first bus out. Life with Christ, his disciples, the 12, being the prime examples of this. His ministry to them being the prime example of what this involves. They followed him. They were with him. They spent time with him. They listened to him. He taught them. And he taught them. And he taught them again. Sometimes in questions, sometimes in parables, sometimes in debate, sometimes visibly through his miracles. But he taught them what life was like or ought to be like in the kingdom. That life involves mercy and forgiveness and obedience and a care and concern for others, an ultimate love for the Lord God and a love for our neighbor. 
And this is why we do what we do or why I can encourage you to go after the service to enjoy fellowship but then to stay around for Dan Kunkel's Sunday school class. You will be challenged. You will be enriched. Here's what you will be. You will be taught. You will learn something. Children, when you go to your Sunday school classes, you are doing what Jesus asked you to do. We are doing what Jesus asked us to do. We're making disciples. We're teaching you to do everything Jesus commanded. To observe everything he has taught us. This happens in our worship, but it happens in Sunday school. It'll happen in life groups. It'll happen at Bible studies. It'll happen around your kitchen table. There's a going, there's a baptizing, there's a teaching. All designed to create disciples from everywhere. Now notice finally this promise, this great promise appended to the commands. Jesus concludes his inaugural address. Matthew concludes his gospel with the promise of Christ's presence and his power to his disciples that they might accomplish his purposes. This is not Jesus' farewell, I'm out, you're on your own. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How does a cowardly group of Jewish men locked up in a room in fear for their lives, some of whom, some of whom notice even here, still doubted. Verse 17. How do they boldly and openly stand before a crowd of puzzled and not particularly pleased people on the day of Pentecost willing to, or at least subject to being perceived as drunken fools, but who will boldly proclaim the name of Jesus, that Jesus of Nazareth suffered, died, and is raised from the dead, and that life can only be found in him. How could they do that but through the enabling presence of Christ in the person and through the power of the Holy Spirit he's poured out on them. Well, here at Trinity Church, we want our fellowship to be warm and inviting. We want people to feel like they're welcomed here. We want people to feel like they've met a friend. And we want to take every advantage of every opportunity we have to let our neighbors and our community know that we're here. So we have outreach events. We participate in a parade. We hold a concert. But let's make no mistake. He, we here are involved in the Christ-appointed call to make disciples. We want to be in the business of disciple-making where God is adding to his church, where Jesus is calling 
to those who have never heard him uh, and who is using us to do that call. Because we want many from among the nations who do not presently acknowledge Jesus as king to hear the call, to want to follow Jesus, to be baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and to be taught that lifelong pursuit of learning the will of God given to us in the word of God that we want to understand correctly, to apply appropriately, to follow wholeheartedly that we might become increasingly like Jesus Christ, that we would be faithful disciples, faithful disciples who make other disciples. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the enabling grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to do the very thing you've called us to do. We thank you, our God, that you have made us disciples of Jesus Christ, that you've opened our eyes to see him, you've opened our ears to hear him, that we have followed him and embraced him, and that we desire to learn from him, that we have identified with him in our baptism and in our professions of faith before the church that we are part of this global, universal community he is gathering to himself, that he's been doing through the ages and gathering in the present and will gather until he comes again. Thank you that we have a part in this. Lord, thank you for making us disciples who are interested in making other disciples, to add to the number that you would receive all the glory and the praise and how we thank you that we do not do this alone but we do this with an eye to the authority and power and dominion of Jesus Christ, highly exalted. And we do this in the confidence and in the strength he gives us in his powerful presence in this promise. He's with us to the end of the age. Receive our thanks and feed us at your table. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people say together, amen.